You guys ready to start the Identity Series live and not virtual? We're not on Facebook this week. We're actually live and in person. All right, well, it was kind of funny, though, because we had people watching on Facebook that don't attend the church at all, and that was, that was pretty cool. But let's stand, let's stand up one more time. Let's stand up. Let's stand up. Let's, let's just go through the first six confessions together. Let's do that. Uh, you should have received a card when you come in. We'll hand them out as you leave. Take this card, put it on your bathroom mirror, recite these, put it on your dash, put it on your dash, put it up in your cubicle where you work. Just get these things ingrained, because this is what the Bible says you are. Number one, you ready? Let's do it together. I am fully forgiven and free from all shame and condemnation. Okay, let's do it a little louder. Number two, I act in audacious faith to change the world in my generation. Good job. Number three. I have no fear or anxiety. I trust in the Lord with all my heart. Number four, I am able to fulfill the calling God has placed on my life. Number five, I am fully resourced to do everything God has called me to do. All right, let's, let's just nail the last, the last one loud, bold, and proud. Number six, I have no insecurity because I see myself the way God sees me. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen? All right, you can be seated. Confession number seven. Actually, today is confession number seven and confession number eight. And they have primarily to do with who God says we are as members of a family. All right, so confession number seven is this. I am a faithful spouse and a godly parent. Our family is blessed. Let's repeat that. Let's uh, just repeat that after me. I'm a faithful spouse. That goes for you too, single people. If you ever plan to get married someday, you might as well get those habits ingrained now. I'm a faithful spouse and a godly parent. Our family is blessed. All right. So we're going to break this down into two sections, being a spouse and being a parent. And I'm just going to skip a rock across those two topics. We obviously don't have there's so much in those two topics. But let's, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 25, out of the uh, New Contemporary Version, I love the way it reads. It reads like this. Yield to obey each other as you would to Christ. Wives, yield to your husbands. As you do to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body, which is the church. As the church yields to Christ, so you wives should yield to your husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it to make it belong to God. Christ used the word to make the church clean by washing it with water. He died so that he could give the church to himself like a bride in all her beauty. He died so that the church could be pure and without fault, with no evil or sin or any other wrong thing in it. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. The man who loves his wife loves himself. And I love the way, the reason that we went with the new contemporary version, we, we usually do it out of the NIV, but the new contemporary version starts off in verse 22, and it says, yield to obey one another. Most, transla- most translations say submit, 
right? And we see that word submit, and we, we, we tend to be like, okay, see, that's why the Bible is archaic and old, and it's out of place, and it doesn't matter. But the word submit in the Greek actually means to yield. So, you know, like when you come up to a yield sign, can, can, can I just clarify something? Yield does not mean stop. Thank you. Amen. Right? That's why you almost get rear-ended by me if you stop at a yield sign. Right? And my voice goes up another octave. Because it doesn't mean... Yeah, I talk to the drivers in front of me, okay? It is, it is something that God is working with me on. Um, and so there is a whole bunch of eye-rolling when we drive to Florida every year. Um, the eye-rolling is not done by me. It's done by <clears throat> my navigator. Uh, that'd be my wife. Right? But when you yield, it means this. I have the power and the authority. To, I have the power and the ability to blow through this if I want. But if I blow through this, I'm risking something. And so he tells the husbands and the wives, and specifically the wives, he says, yield. You have the power and you have the ability to blow through your husband and to blow him off and to do your own thing and go your own way and, you know, whatever. And he says, wives, yield. Because if you do that, you're risking something. You're risking something. Namely, your relationship and your marriage. And so he says, yield. And really, that's a, that's a very good interpretation, is to yield to that. And so that's why I picked the new contemporary version. I, I think it's a great translation in that. So how do we build a strong marriage? I'm just going to give you six things real quick. How do you build a strong marriage? And, and ideally, these six things are slanted to prevent an affair in a, in a marriage. The three, causes, the three top causes for divorce in our country are this. Money, communication, and physical intimacy. Money, communication, and physical intimacy are the top three reasons for divorce in our country. And here's the amazing thing. All three are connected. Trust me. Right? If you're married, you know communication is, communication is tied to physical intimacy and money is tied to physical intimacy, and money and communication are tied together, and they're all looped together so that they kind of all start to affect one another to some degree, in some area, some form. So how do we prevent an emotional affair? How do we prevent, um, let's say, an online affair? Uh, let's, how do we prevent a physical affair? How do we prevent that? Well, to build a strong marriage, it starts with the very first word in those verses. It's yield. Yield. Build a foundation of trust, number one. I'm yielding to you because I trust you in your decision-making. The amazing thing about women is they, they're, they're, and you guys have heard me say this before, it's amazing. I do not mean this in any disrespect whatsoever. I mean it as in a way as a man I don't understand. But women's brains are like a plate of spaghetti, and it's all connected. It's just like this connects to that, and this connects to this. And men's brains are like waffles. There's a square here. Put syrup in that square. Next square. Put syrup in that square. Square. Right? Pull that box off the shelf. Work in that box. Put that box back. And the wife comes to you and say, what about that thing? I don't know, honey. I put that box back. <laughs> right? All the women up front just went, that's right. See? We operate on one thing at a time. We focus on one thing at a time. Women can multitask and do all these. And so we are very different in that. 
And God looked down and said, that's good. I don't know if that was his sense of humor or what that was, but he says, that's good. And so we yield to one another in that thing. And so men, if you have ultimately, you are the decision maker in your relationship. You are the one that makes the decisions, but you have a woman whose mind can think of multiple things. And so what, what it looks like in the priest household is this. Okay, Crit, I got a decision to make. I can think about this, but then I put that aside and I think about, okay, honey, we need to make a decision. What do you see out of this? And she will connect dots. And I'll be like, okay, I hadn't thought of that before. And so we work together in things. We, we think through things together, right? Your relationship has to be built on trust. Number two, talk positively about your spouse. Talk positively about your spouse. In these verses, it says that Christ loved the church. Let me ask you something. Does Christ ever talk negatively about his bride, us, the church? Does he ever talk negatively about us anywhere in Scripture? Nope. He corrects us. But that's not being negative. He never once speaks negative of those who follow him. Never talk down about your spouse to other men. You know, it, it can be real tempting when you're standing in the shop and a group of men start talking about their wives and they just start jumping on board, right? And, and the conversation goes downhill. It can be very tempting to do that. But as men and women of God, especially as men of God, we are not to degrade our wives in any form or fashion, especially in public, especially in front of her. Our job is to build them up, to edify them, to glorify them. And so our job is to love them and to build our spouse up. Number three, never be in a position, never be in a position where you can end up badly or the, the situation can end up badly. What, what does that look like? That looks like being alone with somebody of the opposite sex, even though you're just friends. Never being alone with someone of the opposite sex because it's too easy for them five years down the road to go, yeah, you remember that one time we rode in the elevator together? No, what are you talking about? It's that easy in today's society. There's a reason I don't have Snapchat. I sent you that picture, remember? And they can go out, well, it's gone. It's gone in 10 seconds. If I have Snapchat, they can accuse me of anything. There's no history of it, Right? You don't put yourself in compromising situations. And so you just don't get alone with somebody of the opposite sex. Now, this is tricky, especially in the corporate world, where prior to being a pastor, I had a job where I traveled a lot, right? And so publicly, I have to travel with a woman, so in the airport... Eating out, I'm constantly in public. Everybody can see what's going on. But I do my best to, when we hit the hotel, guess what? You go on in. I'm going to run down and put gas in the car. I find a way to separate that. I find a way to get separation, to do what it takes to not put myself in a compromising situation. Number four, boy, this is going to sound really silly, but for a lot of us, it's not. Okay? Number four, keep away from alcohol and drugs. Some of us don't have a problem with that, but some of us do. 
And what happens, as you know, with drugs and alcohol is that it lowers your inhibitions and it brings you to a place where you're not, you don't think clearly. You do things that, and this goes for prescription drugs as well. Prescription drugs that make you feel like Superman, like you could do anything. Well, I can do this and get away with this. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to get hurt. Yeah, you are, right? Number five, this might seem silly, but again, it goes back to the habits we create when we're single. Number five, accept the fact that you're no longer single. (laughs) Just accept the fact. You're not single anymore. You can't walk around like you're single. You can't think like you're single. You're not single. Right? You're one with your spouse. Unfortunately, what happens is that we don't prepare for our spouse when we're single. We don't prepare for marriage when we're single. We live our single life like we're single and we can do whatever we want. And I talk to so many people, they think that somehow something happens at the wedding service like there's a flip that's switched once you get married. There is no magical switch that gets flipped at a wedding ceremony. What you start when you're single will get carried through into your, will be brought into your marriage. You might be better for a month or a year, but you will fall right back into those habits. Right? So accept the fact you're no longer single. And number six, and I saved the best for last because mom always made me eat dessert last, and so that's what you're getting. Number six is the best. Number six, worship together. The scripture says, as we read it, Christ used the word of God to wash over us, his bride. He cleanses us with the word of God. We get into the word of God, and it cleans out the gunk in our emotional life, in our mental life. It begins to purify us. Well, husbands... Are you worshiping together with your wife? Are you reading the scripture or doing a devotional together with your wife? Right? Are you praying together with your wife? Now, most men, and, I, and I'm just going to be real honest with you because we're in church, right? That's what we're supposed to do is be honest. Most men did not grow up in a house where the dad was the spiritual leader of the home. And so they have no idea what it looks like to be a spiritual leader. And so where do I start? You can start very simply by getting on online and looking for a devotional to do with your spouse when you first get up in the morning or when you go to bed together. Just read a page, read it out loud to your wife, maybe talk about it, grab her hand and say, God, thank you for my wife, thank you for a great day, help us sleep well tonight and enjoy tomorrow, amen. It can start as simple as just praying and giving thanks to God for the food before you eat. It can start very simple and grow into something that will hold your marriage together when you guys are going every which direction. You see, the problem happens over the course of 18, 20, 25 years as you're bringing up children that you're so focused on the children that you stop focusing on your relationship. So when the kids move out of the house 20 years later, you're like, who are you? And we laugh about it. But how many times do we see couples getting divorced after 20 years, 21 years, because now they're forced to live with each other, and they don't even know who that person is in the house because they've been so focused on the kids, running kids here and there and everywhere, and they never stop to take time for each other. Happens all the time in our society. Happens all the time in our county, in our town. Right? Worship together. King Solomon said this. Just listen to this. I use this in almost every wedding ceremony. But King Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 4.12, though one may be overpowered, 
Two can defend themselves. One's overpowered. Two can defend themselves. Listen to what he says next. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. He says, one's overpowered. Two, and he's talking about marriage. He's talking about relationship. He says, two, you can kind of defend yourself. If you bring in and invite a third being into that marriage to strengthen it, it's nearly unbreakable, some translations say. Can't tell you how many times that I've heard my own parents say, if it wasn't for Jesus, we'd be divorced. If it wasn't for Christ and our relationship with God and attending church and being in the Word together, we'd be divorced. Now think about what that means to me as their son when I hear that. It means like, aha, right? Without Jesus, this is how important this is. This is how important this is. And so to build a strong marriage, those six things, if you can incorporate them, and those six things are found in that verse that we read, you know, Christ washing us over with his word and, and cleansing us and yielding to one another and talk positively as, as Christ does about us. Never be, in a comp- never be in a compromising situation. Accept the fact that you're no longer single. All of those things. But the next part of this statement, a godly parent I'm a God, guess what? Once you have a child, you're a parent until God sees fit for you no longer to be a parent. I still get phone calls from my mom. Why did you post that on Facebook? <laughs> like, mom, stop it. Like, stop. Like, you have grandkids now. Why are you calling me? You know, like, mom's always there. Mom is always, dad is always there to give advice. They're there. You will parent for the rest of your life once you have kids. They might move out of the house, but they never move out of your heart. That was good. I'll say that again. They might move out of your house, but they never move out of your heart. All right. Everybody get your alls out on the count of three. One, two, three. All right. Good job. And so you're always a parent. So how do we parent? from the time that they're infants to the time where they're finally changing our diaper. Right? Right? Um, how do we do that? Well, I love what Deuteronomy says. Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verses uh, 6 through 8. It says this, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. He says, parents, along the way, going to the ball game, going out to eat, talk about the things of God. Talk, play Christian music in the car. Talk about Jesus. Impress it upon them. Pause the movie for a minute and say, now how does the Bible say we should handle that situation. Now, I get eye rolls in my house when I pause a movie and say, okay, now, I get the eye roll, but guess what? I'm putting it in the memory bank because one day the Holy Spirit's going to need to pull that out of their memory bank. So you just battle through the eye roll and impart the Word of God in their life anyway, right? You do that anyway. The word impress means to sharpen with the intent to pierce. You're sharpening their spiritual sensitivity 
because one day they're going to need to pierce the darkness around them. And they need to be sharp and they need to be spiritually on it. Now, of course, you can't make them follow Jesus. You can't make them stay in church and have a relationship with God. But you can do your part to make sure that's sharp and that, that's honed so that when they leave, they hit the mark. Psalm 127, verse 4, David says this, Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Man, I tell you what, the way some people parent, you would think that they're just grabbing arrows and going, foo, foo, it'll hit the mark eventually. I'm not going to discipline my kid. My kid can just do whatever they want. My kid can do this. David says, no, 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 your kid's an arrow. And the last time I checked, how many, how many hunters do I have in here? Right? You aim for the uh, two hands. I always saw two hands. I know better than that. Right? Because I know opening deer season, attendance goes, Pfft. So I know there's more hunters in here than that. But listen, when you draw that bow back, you're aiming for something. And David said, your kids are the same way. And one day, you're going to shoot them out of your house. And your job is not to make sure they're good citizens. Your job is not to make sure that they're a good husband and a good wife. Your job is to equip them to love Jesus, and to listen to his voice. And the reason that I'm teaching you to obey me is because one day God's going to speak to you and you're going to have to obey God. It isn't just so that you will obey your boss and not get fired. It's not... See, we miss the mark when we think that our job as parents is to teach them how to live in a physical world. Guess what? If you're a Christian family, you're not a part of a physical world. You, you live in a physical world, but your aim is really to get them to hit the mark spiritually. All the rest will follow. They'll be a good husband and a good wife and a good employee if they're hitting the mark spiritually. That's a part of being a Christian. And so our job is to make sure that they hit the mark when we let that arrow fly. Now, I uh, recently just got into a coaching relationship with uh, another pastor. And in our phone conversation two weeks ago, he said this. He said, he, said, I, he goes, i got to figure out how to say this to my congregation. And I thought, well, just say it. You know, like, just say it. So I'm just going to say it. And then I'll let him know how it goes over, just saying it the way he said it. But he said, he said when parents choose to skip out on church, it's the children that are most affected. When parents choose to skip out on church, it is the children. It is the children's future spouse. It is their future grandchildren. It is the children that are most affected when the parents choose to skip out on church. Think about this. Where else do they learn about how a marriage is supposed to work? Where else do they learn about morality and virtue and integrity? Where else do they learn how to interact with people in a loving way? Manner. Where else do they learn to serve lovingly, even though they don't feel like it, and to put self second? Do you think anywhere in society is going to teach you to put self second? No, you need to go get yours. You need to put yourself first. No disrespect to our school systems, but they're not going to learn all of that in school. They're going to have to fend for themselves in school. The church is the only place where we're taught this stuff. You can, 
it's so important, and I, I really don't have time to get into all of the data that shows that children that attend church on, on a regular basis, they do better in reading, they do, re, they do better in social studies, they do better in history, they do better on standardized testing, they do better in, in social environments. The data's out there. The children are the ones that are most affected when mom and dad decide, well, not this morning, we're going to go do this instead. It's the children that are, that, that are getting damaged by not going to church, not the parents. The question is, what do we want? What, what does God call us to do as godly parents? Next one, out of the New Contemporary Version, I'm just going to kind of wrap up the whole parenting thing with this because I, I know uh, I don't want to hear my son's amen. I just, I know this is me. All right, I already know that, guys. Colossians 3, 20 and 21. Paul writes to the church at Colossae. He says, Fathers, do not nag your children. If you are too hard to please, they may want to stop trying. You know what that means? Paul says in other places, he says, don't exasperate your children to the point of wrath. In other words, don't exasperate. Don't, don't ride your kids so hard that they're like, whatever, what's the point? I might as well just quit. Now, as a competitor... And sometimes as a coach, I tend to ride my kids and be like, come on, you can do it. And I tend, I tend to push them and I tend to nag them. And I do it to the point where they're just exasperated. What's the point? Why am I even trying? I'm never good enough. I just can't do it. How many of us have been there at some point like that growing up in our life with our parents? Right. And Paul says, don't do that. You know what it feels like? It feels like the first time you realize there was this game called Flappy Bird, and you're trying to get your bird through all the little pipes, and you keep getting a higher, higher score, and it gets harder and harder, and then finally you realize there's no way to win Flappy Bird. I can never win. And then you know what you feel like? You feel like this. I don't win Flappy Bird. I can. All right, I'm going to show my age. When asteroids came out on Atari, you realize you'll never clear asteroids or missile command. Those old games were never about clearing them. There was all, it was always about what's the next best score? What's the next best score? I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. And you realize I can't win. And Paul says, quit playing Flappy Birds with your kids. You, they're never going to win, and they're going to, feel, they're going to feel ashamed and doubtful. And what's the point? I might as well just give up. And so that's, that's enough on parenting. <laughs> Don't play flappy birds with your kids, right? But seriously, right, be the faithful spouse and the godly parent. Confession number eight, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to repeat this after me. Confession number eight. I am completely whole. Physically, mentally, and emotionally. Physically, mentally, and emotionally. Woo! All right. Now, I am whole physically, mentally, and emotionally. For some of us, that's going to take some work. Not just physically, but mentally and emotionally. Sometimes we're just not whole, right? We're just not whole. Well, 
the Bible instructs us to take care of our bodies, and we're going to see that here in a minute. So what are the top five signs that you may be out of shape? You ready? Now, I don't mean to convict. All right, some of you have already blown your New Year's resolution. Most New Year's resolutions don't even last through January. That's why after this series, we're doing a whole new series called Reset. Hit the reset. Remember the old NES systems? They used to have a reset button, right? We're just going to reset in the next series. But five signs that you may be out of shape. Number five, your record is three push-ups, and you could have done more, but you had to save energy to open up the ice cream. That might be a sign that you're out of shape. Number four, random strangers come up and poke you in the belly expecting you to giggle. That might be a sign that you're out of shape. Number three, watching a Rocky movie is your idea of a workout. Might be a sign that you're out of shape. Number two, sign that you might be out of shape, you cramp up while watching the Boston Marathon. The number one sign that you might be out of shape is that you pulled a muscle just rolling over to turn off the alarm clock. You might be out of shape. All right? You might be out of shape. John chapter, or third John chapter, there are no chapters in third John, I'm sorry. Third John verse two. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along. Paul, uh, I'm sorry, John writes, so used to saying Paul, John writes in third John verse two. He says, listen, I want your body to do well even as, what's he putting first, the body or the soul? Even as your soul is getting along well. He says, you first got to take care of your soul and then take care of your body. Because guess what? You're, I hate to tell you, your body's going to go out. Some of us are either already realizing our bodies do not do what they used to do, and some of us are like still got the world by the tail. But at some point, the body is going to quit because it's not eternal, but your soul is. And so Paul says, take care of the soul and then take care of the body. Paul, on his missionary journeys in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he writes Timothy, and he says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So when Paul traveled, think about this. Paul brought Luke with him. Luke was a doctor. Luke was a physician. And we think that Medicine back then was extremely crude. It actually wasn't. Their medical practices back then, some of those things are still practiced today. And so Luke was a trained physician, a trained doctor, and so he went with Paul. Paul took Luke with him wherever he went, and he wrote Mark, and he brought Mark with him. Mark was um, understood Scripture very well. And then he said, bring, uh, he told Timothy, bring Mark with you. So Timothy traveled with with Paul as well. Now think about what Paul surrounds himself with on his travels. Mark, who understands scripture, who's good friends with Peter, who walked with Jesus, he brings Mark with him. He brings a physician for his body. And he brings Timothy with him. Now why Timothy? Well, Timothy, Paul had mentored and brought up in the faith. Timothy was young. Timothy was like 19 or 20 years old. Paul was mentoring him and bringing him up in the faith. Timothy would eventually become a pastor of one of the largest churches in the early church. Some believe that Timothy's church had tens of thousands of people in it. So by the age of 25, he's pastoring a megachurch because of his tutelage under Paul. 
And so Paul carries these people with him. And so my question to you this morning is this. Are you a godly parent? Are you a faithful spouse? Are you taking care of your body to the best of your ability even as you're taking care of your soul? Because that's who we are in Christ. We're people who take care of our bodies, we take care of our souls, we're faithful to our spouses, and we're godly parents. I want to tell you the story in closing about a man by the name of Frank Losh. Now, you may not know who Frank Losh is. You're about to find out. There was a boy that attended a Presbyterian church in Chicago in the 20s. And he says that every time in the 1920s in this big Gothic cathedral in Chicago, every time the ushers would come down and pass the plates, right, because they couldn't give online in the 20s, right? Everything you read on the Internet isn't true. I saw that on Abraham Lincoln's Facebook page. He said that, right? So they would pass the plate. And as they, they passed the plate, he said every time, the most moving part of the service, every Sunday, was when Frank Wash, as an usher, would bring the plate down because his father would nudge. He says, my father would nudge me, and he would get tears in his eyes every time Frank passed by with the plate. Now, to us, that doesn't mean a lot. But Frank Losh was a man in Chicago in the 20s who stood up to Al Capone. During the Prohibition years, Al Capone ruled Chicago. He controlled the voting booths. He controlled the police department. His rule was law. But Frank Losh, a Christian, a man who knew what God had called him to do, to right a wrong, to say, this is not okay in our city. This is not acceptable. This is not what God would want. He stood up. He started the Chicago Crime Commission. It was a group of citizens that were determined to take down Al Capone. And one day, Frank Losh heard a knock at the door, and there was a letter slid underneath his front door. And he picked it up, and he read it. It said, do not take another step, or you'll be shot. But Frank Losh knew who he was in Christ. He had an identity in Jesus. He said, I'm doing what's right. And he defended his wife and he defended his children. He was one of the main men. He went toe-to-toe with Al Capone. In the elections of 28, he went to Capone's apartment, knocked on the door, went in. Capone knew who he was. Capone knew that he was... that Losh was out to take him down. And Losh said, your thugs will stand down during this election because we know who they are. And I don't remember, the, I don't remember all the details of the conversation, but essentially Frank Losh told Capone to stand down during the election of Chicago's election of 28. It was the cleanest election in the history of Chicago. Capone went to the police, he went to the people running the polls, and he said... You will not do a thing. All because one man knew who he was in Christ and said, I will stand up to evil. This will not happen in my city. 
And I wonder what would happen if people in Lapel and people around the world that are Christians, that knew our identity and said, no, 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 this is who I am in Jesus. This will not be tolerated in my town. This will not be tolerated in my family. This will not be acceptable. I will stand up because I am a representative of heaven on earth. I wonder what we could do. For Frank Losh, it was taking down Capone, living to tell about it. And every Sunday, as he passed the offering plate, the families in the church realized who he was. He brought tears to the eyes of men sitting in there. Who could we inspire if we stuck with our identity? Who could we motivate? Who could we love if we knew who we really were in Christ? Let's stand up this morning. Let's go through the, we're at confession number eight. So let's do all eight of them. You ready? Number one, I am fully forgiven, free from all shame and condemnation. Number two, I act in audacious faith to change the world in my generation. Number three, I have no fear or anxiety. I trust in the Lord with all my heart. Number four, I am able to fulfill the calling God has placed on my life. Number five, I am fully resourced to do everything God has called me to do. Number six, I have no insecurity because I see myself the way God sees me. Number seven, I am a faithful spouse and a godly parent. Our family is blessed. Number eight, I am completely whole physically, mentally, and emotionally. Do you believe that this morning? That's you. You may not feel like it. You may not think of yourself as that. But God says that's who you are. For the next two weeks, we're going to continue. We're going to get to confession number 12. But man, get in. the reason that these confessions have Bible verses after them, I want you to get into them, study them. Let it become you. Amen? This morning, I'm going to, I'm going to ask uh, Lynn to come down on this side. And I'm going to ask um, Steve Jett if you would come down here. And make your way down. And if you need prayer for anything, if you're here this morning and maybe you've not given your life to Christ, maybe this isn't you. You're still trying to find yourself. I want to invite you to find your identity in Christ, to give your life to Christ this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dismiss. But if that's you, or you need prayer for anything, I want you to come forward, and as we dismiss, just make your way down, and they want to pray with you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence in this place today. I thank you that your Holy Spirit is here. It's working. It's moving in our lives and in our hearts. The Lord, we will take a stand that we will hold our heads up high because in you, Lord, we are redeemed. In you, there is no worry, anxiety, or fear. In you, we can be whole, Lord. And I thank you for that. I thank you that we can be faithful spouses, godly parents, that in you, our joy is made complete. Lord, as we leave this place today, may we share you with somebody else this week. May we know beyond a shadow of a doubt who we are in you and bring somebody back with us next week to hear the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen, amen. Have a great week. We love you.